So uh, we're so glad that you're here today, everybody. Please open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, This morning, we're going to bring to a close our January message series called Seek and Save the Lost. This will be the final part, part four of that series. I don't think I'll ever forget Stephen Gould. Many of you have never heard me talk about Stephen, uh, but I went to Bible College in Fullerton at Pacific Christian College. It's now called Hope International University. And my first semester and into the second and third semester there at the Bible College, I would oftentimes walk across the street to Cal State Fullerton. And I think it was my second year there in Bible College, I was introduced to a man named Stephen. Now, Stephen was an interesting college student over there at Cal State for a few reasons. First of all, the guy was 40 years old. So most of his fellow students at Cal State were half his age. The second thing that was kind of interesting about Stephen is he didn't have any fashion sense. He kind of looked like this guy here, but not quite as handsome. Stephen didn't look like he combed his hair. When his prescription glasses broke, he just wrapped some duct tape around them and kept wearing them. You know, it didn't look like he owned an iron, you know, wrinkly shirt, pants, everything. This guy was visually a mess. But there was something else very interesting about Stephen. He had been a college student there at Cal State for 11 years. 11 years. He took one class every semester, and unlike every other student on campus, he was stretching out his length of time in the university as long as humanly possible. Most students want to get out of there as quickly as possible. Not Stephen. He wanted to stretch it out as long as possible. Why? Well, the reason was his goal wasn't to graduate with a degree. His goal was to be there as long as he could be to be able to lead students to Jesus. So he would enroll in one class a semester, which would allow him to be on campus and have access to college students. And so one night a week, he'd go out and buy donuts, and he'd give away free donuts to night class students. And when they were eating a donut, he'd tell them about Jesus. And then I got connected with Stephen because I heard about his Friday afternoon ministry. Every noon, uh, Friday at noon, he would wheel out into the middle of the campus, into the quad, his little portable barbecue grill. And he would grill hamburgers and give them away for free to students. But Stephen had one rule, and that one rule was no burgers to go. If you wanted a free burger, he would be happy to give you a free burger, but you had to sit down with him, and as he joined you for a burger, he'd tell you about Jesus. Well, it was clear that he had a heart for the lost, and I wanted to have a heart for the lost, so I went over there and joined him one Friday. And within about 20 minutes... I began to critique and criticize his methods. I'm thinking to myself, this guy's a mess. I came another week, same thing. This this guy stumbles over his words. He, He doesn't have much social prowess. He certainly doesn't know how to reach the intellectuals on campus by giving intellectually sound arguments for why they need Jesus Christ and why Christianity is the way to go. And so the second time I was there, I made a decision. I'm just going to quit. I can't, I can't work with this guy. And I feel like it was one of those times in my life where the Spirit of God spoke to my heart. And he said something along these lines. Dane, Stephen is doing more for my kingdom to lead people to Christ than you've ever done. So shut up and help the man. That was a powerful insight for me. 
One of the greatest evangelisms in American history was D.L. Moody. In the 1800s, as he was sharing the gospel, some estimate that he shared the gospel verbally or in print with a hundred million people. Many believe he led as many as a million to Christ. He was a powerful evangelist. And, and one day, one, a, a Christian man came up to him and, and said, you know what, I, the way you're doing things is all wrong. And the man began to criticize D.L. Moody's methods. And so D.L. Moody listened patiently to what the man had to say. And then once he was done criticizing him, D.L. Moody asked him the simple question, well, how would you do it? And the man kind of hemmed and hawed and, and stumbled over his words a bit. And then he finally was honest enough to admit he wasn't doing anything to lead people to Christ. And D.L. Moody responded this way. He said, well, I prefer the way I do it to the way you don't do it. Isn't that good? And it's like God was telling that to me there on that campus of Cal State Fullerton. God made it clear to me that instead of criticizing Stephen, I should help him. So I did help him. I helped him for a short while, and during that time that I was with Stephen, he taught me a lot about being a soul winner for Jesus Christ. He taught me that it's not about having the perfect words. It's not about having the perfect methods. It's certainly not about having even an ounce of fashion sense, because this guy had none of it. Stephen taught me these three things. If you want to win souls for Christ, number one, you've got to love Jesus. Number two, you need to have a heart for the lost. And number three, a willingness to go and be used by God. Isn't that good? You don't need the perfect words. You don't need the perfect outfit. You don't need the perfect training. You don't have the, need to have the perfect 30-minute uh, evangelism presentation memorized. You need to have a heart for Jesus, a heart for the lost, and you need to be willing to go and obediently do what Christ has called you to do. All month long, I've been urging you to be a soul winner. I've worked hard to keep this message series as biblical and as practical as possible. I've shared with you those 10 steps to becoming a soul winner instead of a backslider. I've shared with you uh, from the Gospel of Luke chapter 10, those four steps to prepare the soil, the evangelistic soil, so that people can more easily receive the gospel and receive Christ as Savior. Last week I shared with you Jesus' final marching orders there in Matthew 28 before he ascended into heaven. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, as you are going, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Jesus gave us these marching orders. I've taught you what I believe God has called me to teach you. Now, the ball is in your court, church. The ball is in your court, Christians. And so I want to ask you these three questions. Do you love Jesus? Number two, do you have a heart for the lost? And number three, are you willing and ready to obediently go? To be used by God. And I need to let you know that two out of three is not going to cut it. Many Christians say, yeah, I love Jesus. Yeah, I want to see a non-Christian saved. I love to see people going into the baptistry and, and, and being buried with Christ and raised to walk a new life. I love it. But they do nothing to make it happen. Two out of three won't cut it. You have to be willing to go. 
You have to be willing to be used by God. You have to be willing to get out of your comfort zone. You have to go tell them. You have to go invite them. As you're living your life and going from place to place, you have to get out of your comfort zone and be used by God as his witness wherever it is that you are going. Like Isaiah, we say to God, here am I. Send me. So as I've told you over the last four Sundays, it is my hope, my prayer, that we all begin praying every day, God, make me a soul winner and help me to be able to lead more people to you. Well, we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 today. I want to share with you this, this amazing passage right from the pen of the Apostle Paul about the importance of sharing our faith. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, unfortunately, because of time, we're only going to scratch the surface of what is shared in this great chapter. But hopefully it'll kind of prime the pump and, and inspire you to spend a little bit more time on it on your own this week in your Bible study time with the Lord. Well, let's start in verse 1, and we'll hit some highlights along the way. Now, we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Let me just stop there for a moment. As most of you probably know, when Paul talks about this tent, he's talking about our human bodies. And so he refers to our human bodies as a tent. So there in verse 1, we know that one of these days, this earthly tent, this body that we live in is going to pass away, right? One day it's going to be no more. He goes on to say in verse 2, Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will no longer be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. May God bless us as we study his word today. Aren't you thankful That one of these days we get to leave these broken down bodies behind. Maybe you're one in a thousand and you look in the mirror and say, Woo, that's a good looking fella. Woo, that's a good looking lady. Are you one in a thousand that says that when you look in the mirror? Probably not. These are broken down bodies, right? What a wonderful encouragement it is to know that one day we can leave these old tents behind. We'll get to leave the back pain behind. Amen? Amen. Who's thankful for that? Amen. Get to leave the back pain behind. I know Wayne went in for some procedure this week because his back's killing him. Praise God. Wayne will be able to leave that back pain behind. Uh, We'll get to leave our sore joints behind. Terry, aren't you glad for that? Deals with fibromyalgia every day. Gets to leave that behind someday. Uh, We'll get to leave our bad eyesight and our bad hearing behind. Amen? Amen, Art? Okay, caught that. That's good. (laughs) Giving Art a hard time. Some of us don't hear as well as we used to. I can't see as well as I used to. 
If you're out here, I don't know it today. No, it's not that bad. But we get to leave the bad ear uh, hearing and the bad eyesight behind. Praise God, we'll get to leave our brain fog and our congestive heart failure and our dialysis and our cancer behind. It's awesome. One of these days, this old tent's staying here and we're going elsewhere. I can't wait. So like Paul says in verse 2, we groan longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. As he says in verse 8, we would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Does anyone feel like saying amen to that? We feel like being with the Lord. You know, sometimes we go through these places in our life where we're discouraged and we're depressed and we just cry out to God, God, I'm done. I've had enough. I don't see any reason for me to live any longer. I've pretty much done what I think you wanted me to do. Just take me home. Here I am. Take me home. I'm tired. I'm ready to go home to heaven. And God answers most of the time by saying no. Not yet. Not yet. So, what do we do in the meantime? What do we do when we long to be in heaven but God says no? What do we do? Well, Paul answers that question here in verse 9. He says, So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. Great. That's what we do in the meantime. We please God. Okay, how do I please God? Well, Paul answers that question in no uncertain terms, beginning in verse 11. Picking up in verse 11 of chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, Paul writes, Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are, therefore, Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him. We might become the righteousness of God. There's so much good meat in these verses. I wish we had a little bit more time, but I'll just hit some highlights. Verse 11. So how do we please God? How do we please God in the meantime when he says, no, I'm not through with you yet here on earth. How do we please God here on earth while we wait for him to take us to heaven? Well, he says there in verse 11, we try to persuade men. Great, Lord, try to persuade him to do what? Well, try to persuade him to accept Jesus. That's the whole 
gist of the second half of this chapter. We try to persuade them to accept Jesus, to turn from death to life, to stop being an enemy of God and become a child of God, to stop living for ourselves and start living for Christ, to choose the grace of heaven instead of the justice of hell. That's what we do. We try to persuade men and and snatch them out of the grip of hell so they can enjoy eternal bliss in heaven for eternity with Jesus Christ. That's what we do. Look again at verse 14. If you love Jesus and you know that he loves the spiritually lost and dying people around you, his love compels you to act, doesn't it? Paul makes it so clear. His love compels us. Christ's love constrains us is how some translations put it. His love compels us. Soul winning isn't a spectator sport. You can't just be a spectator. You can't just be an enthusiastic cheerleader. You have to, because of the love of Christ, be a witness and share Jesus within your oikos. If you weren't here last week, we talked a little bit about that Greek word oikos. literally means household. Your oikos is your group of 8 to 15 people that God has supernaturally and strategically placed in your life for you to lead to Christ. Probably your family, your immediate family, maybe your immediate group of friends. Everyone has around 8 to 15. If you can't count them, maybe you've been living in too much of a bubble. Because God strategically does this. He puts a small group around us, supernaturally and strategically, for us to influence for Christ. Look at verse 14. He says Christ's love compels us. We have to do it because Jesus' love is so powerful. Verse 18, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So think about that. If you love Jesus, certainly at some point you've desired to be a part of an impactful ministry, haven't you? It's, it's natural. If you love Jesus, you want to serve Jesus. If you love Jesus, you want to do something meaningful for Jesus. And so if you've had that desire to take part in some ministry that makes a difference because you want to do it for Jesus, congratulations, your ministry is identified right here. You've been given the ministry of reconciliation, the ministry of bringing people with no purpose to the God of all purpose. We are surrounded by people who see no point in living. They just go from entertainment to entertainment, from drink to drink, from bar to bar, from hit to hit. That's all they're living for is just the next little burst of fun. And they know the next morning when they've got that hangover or the next morning when they're laying next to someone they barely know, they know it's all meaningless. So many people are just living for the moment and they see no point of it all. And Jesus Christ, praise God, has given us the opportunity to reach them for Christ. Amen? He's given us the opportunity when people don't know what their purpose is. We introduce them to the God of all purpose. They have no hope, and we introduce them to the God of all hope. Amen? And they don't, uh, they don't know how to have any peace with God. And praise God, we get to introduce them to the Prince of Peace. Jesus Christ. Aren't you thankful for that? We get to introduce them to Jesus Christ. So how do we please God here on earth? We introduce people to Jesus. 
We carry out the greatest ministry he's ever given us. You wanted to take part in a great ministry. He's given you the most important ministry he ever gave anyone. The ministry of reconciliation. D.L. Moody walked down a Chicago street one day. And he went up to a, a man and he asked him the simple question, Excuse me, are you a Christian? And the man immediately reacted in anger. He clenched his eyebrows and he clenched his fists and he said, it's none of your business. It's none of your business if I'm a Christian. And D.L. Moody looked at him and said, yes, it is my business. And he proceeded to tell him about Jesus. Wow, what an amazing answer. I wouldn't have thought to give that answer. But D.L. Moody understood why God had him here on earth and hadn't snatched him back to heaven as soon as D.L. Moody got saved. God left him here because God had work for him to do. And the same could be said for you and me. Brothers and sisters in Christ, don't buy into the lie from Satan that sharing your faith and leading your oikos to Christ is some other Christian's business. It's not. It's your business. It's your business. It's your ministry. And here together as part of Impact Christian Church, we do this together. It's our business. It's our ministry. That's why we're here. Verse 20, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Do you hear the passion in the words that Paul speaks here? We implore you. We beg of you. We urge you, be reconciled to God. We are Christ's ambassadors. The week before last, I came across a wonderful insight from Warren Wearsby about ambassadors in the Roman Empire. And I never knew this before, and I was really thankful for this insight. I wanted to share it with you. He writes, in the Roman Empire, there were two kinds of provinces, senatorial provinces and imperial provinces. Now, the senatorial provinces were made up of people who were peaceful and not at war with Rome. They had surrendered and submitted, but the imperial provinces were not peaceful. They were dangerous because they would rebel against Rome if they could. So it was necessary for Rome to send ambassadors to the imperial provinces to make sure that rebellion did not break out. And now he makes the connection to what Paul says here in 2 Corinthians 5. He writes, Since Christians in this world are the ambassadors of Christ, this means that the world is in rebellion against God. This world is an imperial province as far as God is concerned. He has sent his ambassadors into the world to declare peace, not war. Be reconciled to God. We represent Jesus Christ according to John 20, 21 and 2 Corinthians 4, 5. If sinners reject us and our message, it is Jesus Christ who is actually rejected. What a great privilege it is to be heaven's ambassadors to the rebellious sinners of this world. Do you believe those words? What an amazing, great privilege it is to be Christ's ambassadors to the rebellious sinners of this world. Amen. It's a privilege. It's an honor to be heaven's ambassadors to the rebellious sinners of this world. Congratulations. You are Christ's ambassadors. So don't look for someone else. It's you. It's you. You are Christ's ambassador to your family and to your circle of friends. It's not me. It's you. 
You're Christ's ambassador to your oikos, not me. Congratulations, if you were employed, you are Christ's ambassador to your co-workers and even to that ornery boss, boss of yours. Amen? If you're in school, congratulations, you are God's ambassador on your campus to the students you go to school with. And unless you're a hermit living in the middle of nowhere by yourself, you are Christ's ambassador to your neighborhood. Not me. You. You are Christ's ambassador. Now, I know that for some of you this seems so daunting, so intimidating. I can't do this. Pastor, you don't understand. I'm not as outgoing as you are. I I, I can't just reach out and have conversations with people I don't know that well. I'm an introvert. I'm not as good at striking up conversations. I don't know what to say. What if I say something stupid? What if I mess it up and scare people away from Christ? What if my coworkers or my neighbors laugh at me and I make a fool of myself? Ever had some of those thoughts? Every hand should go up because I've had them myself. I want to let you know I'm not as outgoing as you think I am. Sometimes I fake it well. I don't think I'll ever forget the words to a song. I was in a youth choir in church when I was in high school, and the chorus to this song we learned, I guess it was kind of popular in the 90s, I don't remember, but I'll never forget the words. They don't know that I go running home when I fall down. They don't know who picks me up when no one is around. Drop my sword and cry for just a while, because deep within this armor, the warrior is a child. Sometimes we look at Pastor Dane or we look at Adam or we look at Alan and, man, they've got all this energy and they're extroverts and they're just telling people about Jesus. They don't see behind closed doors how we fall apart at times just like you do. You don't know what goes on inside my mind and heart at times when I'm knocking on a door and my stomach is in knots and I'm doubting myself and wondering if they'll think I'm a fool, if I'm going to mess it up. I don't go out there and share my faith because I've got all the confidence in the world because I don't. I do it because I love Jesus. I have a heart for the lost. And I know Jesus has called me to go. That's why we do it. Believe me, I'm not as extroverted as you think I am. I'm not as good at this as you think I am. I'm not as evangelistically gifted as you might think I am. I've tried to tell you this month, I don't even have the spiritual gift of evangelism. But I do this because this is what Christians do. This is what Jesus' followers do. Because we cannot bear the thought of people going to hell without him. The Spirit of God, when I experience those fears, I believe the Spirit of God often speaks to my heart and says something like this, Dean, what will happen if you don't tell them about Christ? And I don't know about you, but that's convicting for me. Sure, you're scared. Sure, you're worried about stumbling over your words. Sure, you're not naturally gifted at this kind of thing. But what will happen if you don't tell them? What's going to happen to them? It's a sobering thought for me because I realize in those moments when I feel like God is telling me this, the consequences of me not telling people about Jesus are far greater than the consequences of me telling them and somehow failing. So they think I'm dumb. That's not a bad worst-case scenario. They probably think I'm dumb already. They they, they think I don't explain these things very well. Well, 
big deal. But if I guard my own ego and my own pride and stand back and not say a thing, the worst case scenario there is they spend eternity separated from God in hell. Which worst case scenario is worse than the other, do you think? It's no contest. This past week, I set out on a little Bible study mission. I set out to find every instance of a man or woman bringing someone to Jesus in the four gospel accounts. And so I looked at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and I wanted to look at every account of someone bringing someone to Jesus. And guess what? I found a lot of them, especially in the book of John. Uh, John says a lot about individuals, just everyday Joes and Janes, bringing people to Jesus. In John 1, we read in verses 41 and 42 uh, that Andrew believed in Jesus. And it says the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Aren't you glad Andrew brought Simon Peter to Jesus? Simon ends up becoming the lead apostle. Praise God. Writes the books First and Second Peter years later. Leads the church in Jerusalem for a while. Ends up crucified in a Roman Colosseum upside down decades later. Aren't you glad Andrew went out of his comfort zone and brought his brother to Jesus? You go down a few verses in John chapter 1 verses 43 through 46. Philip does much the same thing. Philip believes in Jesus. He finds Nathanael and tells him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And then I love Nathanael's response. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Barstow? Atlanto? Oro Grand? Victorville? Can anything good come out of those places? And how does he respond? Philip simply says, come and see. Notice Philip doesn't have all the answers, but he just brings them to Jesus anyway, right? He just brings them to Jesus. You go a little bit further down, John chapter 4. The Samaritan woman at the well believes in Jesus, and the first thing she does is run into town and tell everybody, Hey, everybody, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Her live-in boyfriend hadn't even moved out yet, yet she's still telling everybody about Jesus and bringing them to him. She had a lot of stuff in her life that was still messed up. But she had just come to know Jesus. She knew not half the stuff about Jesus and Christianity that you and I know. But she was out there telling whoever would listen. Amen. And she brought her oikos to Jesus. What a glorious thing. You look over in the book of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 4, as Jesus traveled through Galilee, people brought to him all those who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, the paralyzed, and Jesus healed them. On another occasion, Matthew chapter 8, verses 16 and 17, many demon-possessed people are brought to Jesus, and he, of course, healed them. Matthew 9, 32, a demon-possessed mute man was brought to Jesus, and Jesus healed him too. And one of my favorite accounts of bringing someone to Jesus is in the book of Mark chapter 2. Most of you are familiar with this story. Mark chapter 2, Jesus is teaching in Capernaum. He's inside a house. We believe it was Simon Peter's home. And he's in the house, and the crowd is packed in that house. It's wall-to-wall people, and there's so many people who want to hear Jesus teach. They're spilling out of the front door and surrounding the outside of the house. Wall-to-wall people inside and out. And so some men come, four men, carrying one of their buddies on a stretcher. Remember this? 
Each of those friends has one corner of the stretcher, and they're taking him to Jesus because they want their paralyzed buddy healed. Well, they get to the house. They can't even get through the front door. There's too many people. And so they notice there's an exterior staircase, so they go up the staircase carrying their little buddy on the stretcher, and they have this bright idea. Hey, let's dig a hole in the roof, tie ropes to the corners of his mat, and the four of us will lower him down into the room right in front of where Jesus is. And so they do that. They get up on the roof. They're tearing the roof apart. If this was Simon Peter's house, that guy was a hothead. Imagine what he was saying under his breath and even out loud when he sees the dust cascading from the ceiling above him inside his own home and them tearing apart the roof. This guy must have been ticked. But Jesus most likely restrained him and said, easy, Peter, let him finish. (laughs) And so eventually the hole's big enough to fit a stretcher in. They lower him down on ropes in front of Jesus. And notice what Jesus says in Mark chapter 2, verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Don't miss the pronouns here. When Jesus saw their faith. Huh. Jesus is saying, when I see the faith of the four friends lowering their buddy down on the stretcher, I forgive the sins of the man on the stretcher. And so that seems a little confusing. Is Jesus actually saying that the the faith of those friends saved the paralyzed man? And the biblical answer is no. No. But their faith did Get him to Jesus, where he could be forgiven and healed. Amen? I love how Pastor J. Vernon McGee says this. How many of you have heard J. Vernon McGee on the radio? He's been on the radio for 40, 50 years. He passed away, I think, in the late 80s. Uh, but praise God, his Teach Through the Bible uh, broadcasts are still on the air today. The station that I'm on, uh, 107.1, Calvary Atalanta's radio station, he's on there several times a day. His, his preaching's amazing. But I, I like how he says this. Uh, J. Vernon McGee says, It was not their faith that saved him, but it was their faith that got him into the presence of Christ. Never forget that. Your faith cannot save anyone. You can't save anyone. You don't have that power. But you can certainly bring someone to the one who can save them, right? You can bring someone to Jesus. Your faith can get them to the one who can forgive and heal them. A few months ago, my father-in-law shared with me a term that at the time was, was new to me. I wasn't familiar with this term. My father-in-law referred to himself as a stretcher bearer. And I did a little research. A stretcher bearer was very common in the First and Second World Wars. A stretcher bearer was typically a soldier in active combat who had been given some first aid training. And these uh, stretcher bearers would be sent into the front lines and into the trenches and they would find the wounded soldiers, place him on a stretcher and lead him to the field hospital. And so in World War One, if the guy was light and the terrain was rather level, two men could be stretcher bearers and handle the in- injured soldier getting him to the field hospital. But if the terrain was a little rough and jagged, maybe steep hills, and and it was a very intense active combat, they would have four of these guys come. Here's, I think, a World War II shot in this next one. They would come and... That's still World War I, isn't it? I think so. 
but they would have four of these stretcher bearers carry this, this man. Now, even today, soldiers are oftentimes trained to be stretcher bearers. They're the ones that go in there, make sure the wounded soldier is taken to the field hospital where they can be treated and hopefully healed. Well, brothers and sisters, guess what I'm about to say? God has called you to be a stretcher bearer. It's pretty clear in his word, isn't it? He's called you to be a stretcher bearer. You don't need to be a gifted speaker. You don't have to have the spiritual gift of evangelism. You don't need to have a lengthy gospel presentation memorized. You don't even have to have been a Christian for 20 years. The woman at the well had been a Christian for about 30 seconds, and she started telling people about Jesus. You don't need any of those things. You just need to love Jesus and have a heart for the lost and be willing to pick up one corner of the stretcher and help bring people to Jesus. I love how J. Vernon McGee says it. He says, we need stretcher bearers. We need them desperately. Yet there are some folk who have not brought anybody to church with them in 10 years. Is that all your influence is worth? Oh, friend, how you need to get burdened for the lost on the outside so that people who are paralyzed and palsied might get in where they can hear Jesus say, Son, your sins are forgiven. They are not going to hear it unless somebody gets at the corner of a stretcher. Isn't that true? So what will it be? Jesus has called you to be a stretcher bearer. You don't need to save a single person. In fact, you can't save a single person, but you know who can. You know who can. So bring them to Jesus. Bring them to Jesus. On May 16, 1998, interestingly, just two weeks before Christine and I got married, there was a young man by the name of Christopher Scythe, or Christopher uh, Serkey, I think is how he pronounced his name. He was playing basketball with some friends. A stray bullet came across that basketball court and hit him in the chest, punctured his aorta. His friends, as best they could, picked up his body as he was bleeding profusely, and they took him to the local hospital. And they were able to get him within 40 feet of the entrance of that hospital, and they couldn't carry him any further. So they rushed inside and, and told the nurse at the front desk, what was going on, that their, their friend was dying and bleeding to death out front. He needs a doctor immediately. And they were informed by that attendant at the front desk that the hospital couldn't do anything because their policy was they could never treat anyone that was outside the hospital. A few minutes passed. Finally, a policeman overheard what was going on. He grabbed a wheelchair, rushed outside, put the kid on the wheelchair as best he could and rushed him into the hospital where he was treated. But he died about an hour later because it was too little, too late. Here in the Victor Valley, there are tens of thousands of people who desperately need to be brought to Jesus. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So Jesus calls you and me to pray like never before God send me. We don't have enough workers. We don't have enough people with the spiritual gift of evangelism. We don't have enough pastors. We don't have enough elders. We don't have enough deacons. Send me. Would you begin praying that with me?
Send me. God is calling us to pray by name for those we know who need Christ, those within our oikos. Don't just pray in general for people to be saved. Pray by name for those you know who need to be saved. And pray like their lives depend on it because they ultimately do. Church family, will you do this for me this year? Will you pray for yourself to be a soul winner? Will you pray for those around you, by name, those who need Christ? And would you keep your eyes open to opportunities God gives you to share Christ? Most of us don't know of the opportunities God is giving us because we go through life like this. I have to get from point A to point B, and okay, I've got to go to Winco, and after Winco, now I've got to go over here to Walmart, and after I go to Walmart, now I've got to go home, and we don't open our eyes to see all these opportunities around us that God is leading us to Christ. I noticed Alan, when he wheeled in this morning, he had a stack of his books. I guess one of you had asked for some copies of his book called To Persevere, so it reminded me. That it was just on Friday, Haley, my uh, second daughter, and I, we went out to, to Denny's. And uh, before we walked into Denny's there in Apple Valley, I popped my trunk and grabbed one of Alan's book. And I, I said to Haley, God always gives an opportunity to give this to somebody. I had no idea who it was going to be. But I was ready because I'm serious about this stuff I'm telling you this month. we got to be ready. And so I had it sitting on the table. We enjoyed a nice breakfast. And near the end of the breakfast, I talked to the waitress and asked her, hey, is there anything we can pray for you about? And she says, well, one of our regular customers was in a car accident and died. And so I said, we will pray for the customer. She told us his name. And I said, well, I have this book here I just wrote. And it's a, a, a friend of mine lives in Apple Valley. And we give these to people that are hurting and those that are grieving. Uh, could you maybe get this to the family? And she says, yeah, I'm going to the funeral in a week or two. And so I signed that over to the family, hand this to this waitress in Denny's. And she says, I'm going to put it where people can see it in the meantime, but I'm going to give it to that family. I never would have known of that opportunity if I didn't allow myself to be used by God. And believe me, in those moments, I don't have the perfect words. And my stomach is twisting and turning. And I don't feel self-confident in my ability to do this at times. But Jesus wants them saved. So would you just kind of expand your view as you go and do whatever it is you're doing? You give God full permission to put a wrench in your plans And delay you a little bit to point people to Jesus wherever you are. Talk about how awesome Jesus is with your family and friends like never before. Keep these gospel tracts that I've given to you over the last few weeks. Keep these handy in your back pocket. The tracts and the little invitations to church. Have them on hand because you can bless people with them. Be available. Whatever God has called you to do. To lift up that stretcher and lead people to Jesus. In 1994, on the campus of Cal State Fullerton, Stephen Gould was obedient to the calling God had given him to pick up a stretcher, go onto that campus, and in his mumbling, bumbling way, lead people to Jesus. He was faithful. He went on to the spiritual battlefield with that stretcher, and he was a soul winner for Jesus. Now it's our turn here in our own backyard, in our Victor Valley, in our Jerusalem. God is calling you and he's calling me to grab a corner of the stretcher, go on to that battlefield, and let's bring a whole bunch of lost and dying people to Jesus.
Amen. Lord, we love you. And we thank you that your love compels us. Your love is too good to keep to ourselves. So, Lord, I pray that as we are in your word every day, as we are in prayer every day, as we meet together each week, Lord, that our love for you would only grow and intensify. You are the best news in this world. You're not just good news. You're the best news. Far be it from me to keep that best news to myself. And Lord, I pray that we would have a burning desire to boldly pray, God, make me a soul winner. May we not have any fear in praying that prayer. Make me a soul winner. I want to see my kids and my grandkids and my neighbors and my coworkers and my classmates saved much more than I want to keep myself from being embarrassed. I want to see them saved more than I want to keep my dignified persona going. I want to see them saved more than anything. So make me a soul winner. Lord, may we be praying for them by name, bringing their names to your throne of grace. May we be ready, Lord, as we go out each morning with invitations and gospel tracts in hand. Lord, not knowing who we're going to give them to, but trusting that you will give us opportunities as we take those blinders off and open our eyes to the people around us who are sheep without a shepherd, those who are lost and dying without Christ. I pray, O oh God, that you would use us wherever we go. And we want to see so many within our oikos reach for Christ this year. We want to see our family and friends and neighbors and co-workers and friends saved. Would you save many this year, Lord, as we obediently go? We do love you. We do have a heart for the lost. So I pray that we would go. Help us to be stretcher bearers for you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here today and you've never accepted Christ as your Savior and Lord, it's a great day to do that. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. We like to share the ABCs to keep it simple. A, admit that you are a sinner and need Jesus. B, believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and he's your only way to be forgiven and saved and make it to heaven. And C, choose to begin following him today. If you've chosen to turn from your sin, to put Jesus in the driver's seat of your life, and have him as your Savior and Lord. We've been heating up this baptistry this morning. We're ready to baptize you. That point in time when you make it clear, I am following Jesus Christ from now on. I'm buried with Christ. And as I come up out of that water, I'm raised to walk a brand new life. Not because it's holy water. There's no such thing. But because in your heart, you're receiving Christ as Savior. Amen? If you have that decision to make or you need prayer, you come to see us. And uh, by the way, there in the lobby, we do have that sign up if uh, you or it's not a sign up. If you'd like to get one of those books for the Bible study on Wednesday, stop by and grab a book. And uh, if you are a first time visitor, see uh, Evelyn or Carrie at the back table. And today is our last day receiving donations for Rose of Sharon Pregnancy Center. So if you brought some diapers or wipes or have a monetary donation, see Carla there at the back table as well. We are so glad that you're with us today. Uh, I'll be available Throughout this year, and as long as God hasn't called me home yet, I am available to partner with you in leading your friends and family to Christ. 
If you need me in your family room, when you want to share Christ with someone, let me know, and I will try to be there. We want to support each other in this. You don't have to go it alone. Amen? Let's see many people saved for Christ this year for the glory of God. God bless you.